This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Another Monday in America. Another successful start to the work week, OG. I think, well, I think it's going to be successful. We just just started ours. We just started so, it. There's still time. It, it could all go downhill from here, Don't people. Don't give up yet. The reason we won't give up is because all weekend long we had men and women protecting us, making sure that we could just enjoy the weekend and now enjoy our first cup of coffee getting back into the week. So why don't we raise those glasses? Oh, gee, those glasses of coffee. Got or, a uh, football mug today. Oh, I got my flower pot mug from Garvin Gardens. Uh, here's two, the men and women protecting us, our troops. On behalf of the men and women at Navy Federal Credit Union, the men and women making podcasts in mom's basement. Here's to you. Let's go stack some Benjamins. Semper Fi. I'm actually Snavely being of sound mind and body to hereby bequeath the following. To my wife, Rose, who spent money like there was no tomorrow, I leave $100 and a calendar. To my sons, Rodney and Victor, who spent every dime I ever gave them on fancy cars and fast women, I leave $50 in dimes. And to my other friends and relatives who also never learned the value of a dollar, I leave a dollar. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and are you ready to put your financial house in order? Today, we welcome the man behind the popular Humble Dollar blog and the former Wall Street Journal personal finance columnist, Jonathan Clemens. For our TikTok Minute, how do you get rich quick? One creator has an idea some of you may have actually tried. And in our headlines... 
You know what you're invested in. What products are advisors recommending for their clients? One source is out with their list. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky stacker with a financial conundrum, which OG will swoop in and answer. And then I'll share some mind-blowing trivia. Sure to entertain your friends at work or your next social function. You're welcome. And now, two guys who put the diss in every function, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I think that means we make the function. We make every function better. You and I show up, it goes from eh, an okay thing, OG, to a party. Uh, To party. Yes, absolutely. The meter swings up. Hey, everybody. Welcome to, we'll interpret that word however we want, podcast. I'm Joe Salcihai, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the card table from me, ready, strapped in, set to go on another work week. It's Mr. OG. How are you, man? I am uh, fantastic. It's Monday and it's way too early for a Sunday. Or Sunday, see? I don't even know. You should have seen the stuff I was doing this morning. I poured coffee beans into the coffee filter, not in the hopper. Oh. I was like, I was like, I need coffee. And I poured the whole, I filled the whole thing up with coffee beans. Right into the filter. That that didn't produce the coffee I was desiring. Did you actually start the coffee? No, I, I caught it beforehand. Good, because you can't put the wet beans then into the... Oh, yeah, I just, you know. So, I don't know what day it is. Sunday, Monday. Do you put the beans in the dryer? Is that, like, how do you dry the beans? Just no, lay them just out? set them out. Set yeah. them out. It's a manic we Monday. We got a great show. We got Jonathan Clements here. I wish it was Sunday. It is. It's about time. For people who don't know, because uh, that's my fun day. Yeah. Today's our fun day. With Jonathan Clements here. And I don't have to run. It is about time we got him. For people who don't know who Jonathan Clements is, he is for personal finance geeks. We have had so many people who have been on this show who've said that Jonathan Clements helped build their worldview of investing. Of course, uh, as Doug so eloquently you said earlier, he's the former Wall Street Journal personal finance columnist, Humble Dollar blog. He's just written his ninth personal finance book, and they're all just fantastic. But before that, we've got a heck of a headline and a big time show. Oh, gee, why don't I go over the, uh, let's go over the run of show you and I here for a second. So everybody, we just need a second. Okay. Yes. So uh, we'll be, uh, hold on just a second. Why don't you guys listen to this and we'll be here. This episode sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. That's the first half. You got what we're going to do? Yeah. No, I got it. Well, almost. Let's. Here's the second half. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal 
rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Jonathan Clements waiting in the wings. So let's get to our headline. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us from Investment News. This is a study Investment News just did about investment directions and financial advisors. OG, it walks through what products financial advisors are recommending and which ones they think they'll use more of in the next 12 months and which ones they think they'll use fewer of in the next 12 months. And this is always interesting because I know a lot of people who listen to podcasts like this don't use professional help. And like you and I have said on countless occasions, the discussions pros are having about money and the discussions the DIY community is having about money often are so, so, so different. It's remarkable. And I think both of them maybe need to be a little closer to each other. But before we get to this survey, when it comes to types of investments, is there any type of investment you see your practice using more in the next 12 months than you used in the last 12 months? Uh, no, because how could a year, how, how could just a simple year result in, you know, doing more of one thing or less of another? Like that seems too much of a fundamental shift. You know what I mean? Well, it might not be based on the last year. It might be, you know, at some point you may turn the ship a little bit and go, oh, we've got some new data over the past Cash. 20 years or whatever Cash it might and be. Bitcoin. Maybe. Were you surprised a couple of weeks ago, Rick Edelman on the show saying more clients looking for Bitcoin and more advisors saying that they work with crypto, that crypto is is a piece of the puzzle that they want to make sure that they deal with for their client. Did that surprise you? I think that, um, I think his definition of more was probably skewed by by some different timeframes because I guarantee it's gone down in the last <laughs> year or two as the Bitcoin frenzy kind of, kind of uh, petered out a little bit. But um no, we don't have a lot of that either. It's just not a, I've yet to see the investment use of it. You know what I mean? It's a speculation and it's certain that um, people are making money on it, but people make money doing all sorts of things, speculating, but people are losing lots of money on it too. I, I just can't see the thing that produces value. It's like, you know, precious metals. It's like gold. It's not a, gold is not an investment. A company who produces gold, a company who mines for gold, you know, that's a different thing, but a pile of gold is not it doesn't do anything, you know, just sits there. So tell me what it's good for. And then I can, then I can tell you how it fits into the plan. I mean, I guess maybe, maybe we continue to move more and more from, from mutual funds to ETFs. There's still some products that you just, you know, are okay as mutual funds, but anyways, I'll be interested to see what this article yeah. says here. No, well, it's funny. That change is one of the biggest changes that advisors are making the uh, currently used by advisors. 90.1% of advisors surveyed said they use exchange traded funds. And I bet if we, if we went through our listener base, I bet that would be closer to, I would think 70 just, and that's non-scientific, but uh, maybe we should run a poll in the basement about what, uh, what things people are using uh, in our own community 
but 90.1% of advisors use those. 78% use cash and equivalents. I was surprised that's not 100. It seems like every advisor would have some cash and equivalent. Third, mutual funds, 63.9% recommend mutual funds. 50.8%, just over 50%, recommend individual stocks. That number is higher than I thought that it would be, OG. Yeah. It's so hard to... I mean, if you just look at the last, I don't know, 10 years worth of time frame, you know, we're, we get questions from people sometimes that are like, hey, I noticed that the NASDAQ is up 30% and my portfolio is up eight. What gives? It's like, well, what gives is that, you know, that's five stocks that are pulling the entire index and that's happening to the S&P also, you know, four or five companies that are that are representing half of the return or more of the return of of the whole the whole index, which is actually proving the point of why you just want to be diversified anyway, you yeah. know? So why, why would you want to focus on trying to pick the next five horses in that 500 person horse race? That doesn't seem like an easy task. Interesting to find out what those individual stocks are. They're recommending 47% individual bonds. And I think that yeah, probably that has more to do with where interest rates are. Cause if you buy an individual bond, you could just ride it and not have that, yeah. that sinking sound bond ladders. Yeah. You can do a lot depending on your uh, type of client. 34.8% in ESG funds, uh, separately managed accounts, 33%. The only numbers here that truly scare me, you know, the 50.8% individual stocks, I'd love to see more data on that before I went good or bad. Fixed annuities, 30.9% does not necessarily bother me because creating an income stream for a retired person that they can't outlive I might get that, but 30.4% into variable annuities. And think about this, of 100% of the population, while you and I are not anti-annuity, do we think 30% of the population needs an annuity? Yeah, that's a big number. That number seems kind of high. Where are advisors headed in the future? Let's take a look at that data. When I asked you which investments advisors expect to use more of, 49.7% are going the way you are. Nearly one in two people who were interviewed said they plan to use more exchange-traded funds next year than they used last year. That is a good sign. Paying attention to cost, getting away from active management. Well, I mean, you can have those things in mutual funds too. The, The reason we use them is because of the liquidity. And it sounds really silly to say, you know, if you've got two funds that are exactly the same and one's a mutual fund and one's an ETF, they're going to be priced about the same, if not the same, and they're going to have the same stuff in them, generally speaking. But if you're rebalancing or something like that, you got to wait till the end of the day to get your final price. And so you don't know, you know, you say you want to sell 10% of this fund and you don't know what that 10% dollar amount is until four o'clock this afternoon. And now you got to wait till tomorrow to buy it, but you don't buy it until four o'clock the next day. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to be, "Eh, it's just a day, right? But sometimes those days do matter. You know, you, do we talk about if you miss the single best day in a year, your return goes down a whole bunch. So we can't predict when that's going to happen. And certainly sometimes it does by accident, right? You know, you, it's just money doesn't get invested or something. But but with an ETF, you can sell it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and, and buy the next one at 2.01. You know, you're fully invested the whole time. Just r- removes a chance of a screw, screw up, basically. If there is no price difference... And you have materially the same type of investment on the inside. Like if I could have a car that uh, has, I don't know, some thing added, uh, let's say XM radio, 
right? Has yeah. Sirius XM for free versus one that doesn't and everything else is the same. I think that's kind of the analogy, isn't it? Like most of the time it's not going to matter, but if it's the same price, why the hell wouldn't I get the thing that gives me the option to get the price lock in versus the type of investment that doesn't. And there's some other benefits too. There's some tax benefits in a non-qualified account and that sort of thing that ETFs are better for. So you don't want to overlook those either, but we use it. And I think a lot of people would say mostly because of the liquidity. 24.1% say they're going to use more cash next year. That is an ugly number. Not, not liking that. If you want to hear OG and my commentary on cash, go back to next Monday's show. 23.6% 23.6% say they're going to use individual bonds, bond laddering strategies. That makes sense. 17.8% say I'm not going to change it. Uh, nearly 20% of advisors, almost one in five say not going to do anything different. This is the, without going further, other investment alternatives, looking at alts, uh, some of these quirky investments, 11.5% say they're going to use more alts next year than last year. And of the alternatives that they're going to use, of them say they're investing in funds or recommending funds that give them access to alternative asset classes, while 20% are just diving in themselves, making direct investments in alternative products or projects. And and of those using alternative investments, a lot of people wondering, what do we mean by alternative investments? Private equity, 29%. uh, Long short strategies, 16%. 15% in managed futures, 14% in macroeconomic trends. 12% equity market neutral, 11% in options trading. And, and we go, we go down, down that rabbit hole from there. So a few more people, OG, I feel like with uh, questions about where the economy is going, there's a few advisors, one in 10 dipping their foot into that pool going, maybe I need to eke out other, other ways of making money than just long-term hold. But you don't have to. You totally don't, don't have, sometimes I think that's advisors overthinking, which is interesting because when looking at client concerns, what are advisors saying their clients are worried about? 85% said within the past six months, client asked about the impact market volatility would have on their portfolio. And your answer to that would be very positive impact. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you were saving, this would be a good thing. 82% 82% said clients had asked about what inflation would do to their portfolio or their plan. That's a good question for people that, to ask. That would ruin it. <laughs> that, that would blow it up, which is why, you know, you see such aggressive behavior toward getting rid of inflation. So it's like, you got to take the medicine. The medicine is maybe a recession, but uh, they're trying to figure that out, right? Trying to, trying to keep that from happening. A soft landing is the buzz phrase. say people asking about the Secure 2.0 Act, 35% cite client questions about fees and costs, 26% said clients ask about what tax reform might mean. Only 25%, one in four advisors say that clients ask them about crypto. 22% said clients were asking about ESG investing. We'll link to this piece and uh, Kevin Bailey will also dive into more in our 201 of course, we'll also link to it on our show notes, show notes at stackybenjamins.com, 201 stackybenjamins.com slash 201. That's our newsletter that comes out the day after every Monday, Wednesday episode, always free. And by the way, if you get the 201 and know how awesome this thing is, you can recommend it to friends and uh, Kate, our awesome coordinator for all things in that part of the Stacking Benjamins world has set up a referral program, OG, so people can refer their, refer their friends and get swag, stickers, can even get invited to a game night with uh, with us in Texarkana. Sweet. 
stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. And if you get the 201, you'll see in there your unique code uh, that you just give to people to refer the 201 to other people. Coming up next, it's time for our TikTok Minute. This is the part of the show where we take a look at a TikTok creator and see if they're doing something that is creative or maybe not that creative. And today's uh, today's person, OG, today's creators not creative. have a new way to make money. No, not creative. Well, let's see. You might recognize probably a creative way of making money. We'll see. You might recognize these people. I actually don't think it's that. It may not be that creative. They think it's creative. You may recognize uh, these voices. I'll uh, explain more after we listen to these two people figuring out the best way to rob a bank. Ah. Now, I know this plan is foolproof. Check this out. First of all, you and me start working at the bank. Doesn't matter the position, okay? Just so long as we get in there, right? Then we just go there every day, do the work, gain their trust until we get them in the palm of our hand. All right? That's how we get the money. <laughs> That's the beauty of it, bro. They deposit the money into our bank accounts week after week, month after month. They're not even gonna know they're being robbed. And then 20, 30 years later, we walk out the front door like nothing even happened. Mother, that's called a job. <laughs> nice. Key and Peel, right there. Key and Peel. I yep. saw that one on TikTok and thought, well, that, there's some genius right there. You don't have to rob the bank. Just get a jail. <laughs> get a jail. It's just like how you invest. How do you become a millionaire? <laughs> Just day bits. after day. And it's amazing. They don't even see it coming. Nobody arrests you or anything. It's awesome. Walk out the front door. <laughs> <I'm so laughs> they don't even know. Jonathan Clements is uh, a guy who I'm so honored they're not a humble dollar. But man, that is the least of what he's done. He sits on the advisory board of Creative Planning, one of the country's largest independent financial advisors. He's the author of nine personal finance books. He spent nearly 20 years at the Wall Street Journal, where he was their personal finance columnist, six years at Citigroup, where he's the director of financial education for their U.S. wealth management arm. Born in England, educated at this little college called Cambridge University, lives in Philadelphia, and uh, he is now renovating a house, which I plan to ask him about. Jonathan Clements coming up next, but Doug, before we get there, I think you've got uh, some trivia about today's date in history. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, tugging man, oh man. After last weekend's road trip to the beach, gotta tell you, gas prices are through the roof. Prices well over three bucks a gallon. If I wanted to get robbed, I would have just asked Joe's mom for a loan. But today is an important day in history because one of the early auto barons ensured that gasoline would have a promising future after he patented the gas-powered motor car. Here's a question. Who was this individual who today has me snarking about Sunoco and mad about mobile? I'll be back with that villain's name right after I figure out how the heck to siphon gas out of the neighbor's Tesla. Well, if you're new to Stacky Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And uh, the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. 
And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. Well, you know, what I think about Navy Federal, I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country. And I also think about some of our active service members. want to say a special shout out to uh, my nephews, Colin and Nathan, who are both in the Navy. Colin is stationed outside Seattle, Washington on a submarine. And my nephew, Nathan, is in South Africa as an air traffic controller. And in Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants you also to celebrate members, many of whom go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. It's all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their family are eligible for Navy Federal membership. They offer 24-7 help from their U.S.-based member service. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equalizing lender. Hey there, stackers. I'm former petroleum distribution engineer and future bicycle appreciator. You know, if gas prices keep going up like this, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. The price of a gallon of gas probably wasn't on the mind of the subject of today's trivia question, which was who was the automobile pioneer who patented the gas-powered automobile? Well, he definitely wasn't thinking price per gallon of gas because he bought it in liters. He was in Germany, and his name? Well, that was none other than Carl Benz. And now let's welcome longtime Wall Street Journal personal finance columnist and the man behind the Humble Dollar blog, Jonathan Clements. And I'm so happy. We finally have him here. I don't know what took us so long. Jonathan Clements joins us. How are you? Great, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great pleasure. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you were able to talk with mom a little bit upstairs and now hang out with us. So we got to start here, Jonathan, because you write in a recent piece on your website that you moved to Philadelphia and you bought a house and you have 10 rules around buying houses. But one of those rules is you don't like basements. Jonathan, we have organized our entire life around mom's basements. Why don't you like basements? So it goes back to the late 1980s when I was a junior reporter 
At the time at Forbes magazine, when I say junior reporter, a reporter is basically a glorified fact checker. So I was in New York City. I was married. I had a young daughter. And being a reporter, I had no money. So I lived in this part of a brownstone in Brooklyn, which included the basement. And I shared the basement with a considerable number of mice and cockroaches. <laughs> and I have been scarred ever since. So I just have a thing against basements because basements to me mean vermin. The only cockroach here is Doug. Uh, so we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're probably good, but we're not here to talk about that. You have this new project where you have 30 people that have written with you, for you, an humble dollar who contribute to this. Tell me how this project came together. What was the inspiration? So this book really grew out of the website, humbledollar.com, which I launched right at the end of 2016. And for the site, I have a lot of amateur writers who have a keen interest in personal finance who write for the site. And one of the things I say to them all the time is, you may not be an expert on the financial world, but you are an expert on your own life. So one of the things that I consistently encourage the writers for the site to do is to write about things that they have experienced. Fast forward six years, and we got this idea of doing a book where people talked about their financial journeys. And it turned into this book, My Money Journey, and it's about these 30 people and how they reached or are endeavoring to reach financial freedom. So that's really the genesis of the book. You talk about this ended up with themes that even maybe you didn't expect as you see the essays coming back from people. I want to mention these themes. And if you don't mind commenting on these, you write first that if you're a parent, you're molding your child's financial beliefs, maybe even more than you know. Absolutely. If you are a parent, it is absolutely scary how much influence you have on your children. Your children may mimic you. They may head in the completely opposite direction. But whatever it is you do as a parent, it is a megaphone into the ears of your children. And they will carry that with them through the rest of their days. And you see this in the 30 essays in My Money Journey. So many people talk about the influence of their parents on their own financial habits. You know, in many cases, the people who write for the book had Depression-era parents, and those Depression-era parents were super frugal, super scared of the stock market, and this influenced their kids either to shy away from the stock market themselves or to head in the other direction and say, okay, my parents never dreamed of doing anything other than putting money in the bank, and even that, that they did reluctantly, but I'm going to take the risk of investing in the stock market. It's just amazing how much influence our parents have on our financial lives. One of the essays I'm going to ask you about here coming up is uh, from a writer and financial planner, Annika Hedstrom, and she writes about lovingly about her dad, Olaf, who she said was an amazing saver, but he would commonly miss a belt loop. He would often not quite belt up his pants the way that he could. So she noticed everything. One thing I wondered as I was listening to you talk right now, how has that been for you? You have two children like I do. Have you seen your kids' uh, money habits kind of reflect your own or go in a different direction? Scarily so. I have two kids. One's 30, the other is 34. Both of them are extremely careful with money, as I am. And to some degree, I look at the way they behave and say, hey, kids, you should relax. It'll turn out okay in the end. <laughs> I may have not known that when I was starting out, but I can tell you for sure, it's going to turn out okay. My younger kid, my son, Henry, who's 30 years old, just got his PhD. Took him seven years. Oh, congratulations. 
you know, so he he's had seven years where he was basically living on 30 grand a year. Henry told me not so long ago that through the course of his PhD, he managed to save up more than $100,000. Really? Wow. And I was like, yeah, maybe those lessons about thrift and the living beneath your means, maybe I emphasize them a little too much. <laughs> you, you have, Jonathan, actually several writers who say that. That while they many of them were frugal, in fact, the whole first part of your book is about people being frugal and saving. A lot of them regret they didn't do more when they were young. That's true. I mean, a lot of people do look back and say, hey, this financial journey turned out okay, and I wish I'd been a little bit freer with my money. I certainly feel that myself. On the other hand, Joe, I would say to you that one of the ways to ensure that you have a happier life is to enjoy a gradually rising standard of living. If you spent your 20s staying at Motel 6, when you get to stay at a Hyatt in your 60s, it seems like the lack of luxury. <laughs> Versus the other way around, if you don't save, you stay at the Hyatt and you're forced into the Motel 6 later on, it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel the same. You do not want to start life in first class. You want to start in economy and end up at first class at the end. And then you'll really appreciate it. Getting to your message with your son, one of the themes, and I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit, was that often your writers didn't know they were successful until much later. Like, you know, you stumble along, you feel like you're in the fog, but then all of a sudden you realize, I did it. Like, there's this aha point, I guess. It's so true. You know, financial success is not one lucky stock. It's not one lottery ticket. It is a lifetime of doing pretty much the right thing year after year, decade after decade. One of the notions that I like to talk about is this notion of a financial tipping point. When we start out in the financial world, when we start out as adults and we begin to save, making financial progress seems agonizingly slow. And the reason is the progress we're making is largely driven by the raw dollars that we sock away. But if you persist in socking away money, year after year, you eventually hit this tipping point. And this, the tipping point is this. Not only is your portfolio growing because of the money you put away, but the investment returns you earn in any given year start to equal and then exceed the raw dollars that you are putting away. And suddenly your portfolio explodes. It's hitting on both cylinders. And you go through this period where after taking forever to get to any sort of decent sum, suddenly your money doubles and triples and quadruples in rapid time. But to get there, you have to get through this rather grudgingly slow accumulation that might take 10 or a dozen years. But if you get through those 10 or a dozen years, you will hit that tipping point. And suddenly, nobody has to persuade you to save. From then on after, you're going to want to do it because you see that the results are so fabulous. And the writers in this piece write a lot about uh, the mistakes that they made along the way. And some tried market timing, some went into some crazy investments. And what's interesting about what you say, Jonathan, is when you start off, you can make some of those mistakes early on and they don't kill you because you have an accumulated amount of money. Certainly, hopefully you get to broad based indexing or a much more, a much more equitable strategy as you build the build the pile. You know, I'm thinking about Nick Majuli had the book last year with the very simple message of just keep buying when you're young, just keep buying and buying. And that seems to be a theme that resonates all the way through your book. These people through thick and thin continued to just keep buying. The number one thing that they did was to be good savers. I mean, if there's any financial virtue that you want to have, it's to be a great saver. Because if you're a great saver, it will 
paper over a multitude of other financial sins. One of the things that I like to think about my money journey is that it's an inspiring book. Most of us do make financial mistakes. Most of us, particularly when we're younger, we try our hand at picking stocks. We delusionally imagine we know which way the stock market is headed or which way interest rates are headed. But if we persist with the saving, it's going to turn out okay. So that is one of the messages I hope that comes through to readers of My Money Journey, which is even if you mess up, even if you mess up multiple times, you can still reach financial freedom. You can still get to your 60s and have a perfectly comfortable retirement. All you need is this one simple ingredient, which is you're going to live beneath your means and save regularly. You know what resonated with me wasn't just that great savings helps. You write as one of the things, one of these overarching themes is that it's a savings habit. And I know when I was younger, it was saving, the word saving in that partial sentence that uh, was attractive to me. But as I'm getting older, I realize the key word isn't so much saving as it is habit, the habit of frugality, the habit of saving money, about turning these into automatic systems almost in a way where it's second nature to us. The habit piece to me, Jonathan, really resonates all the way through the book. So Joe, before we started recording this, you know, we were talking about exercising, you know, and a lot of people struggle to exercise and they get up in the morning and it's an act of willpower in order to go out for a run or go to the gym or whatever it is. But if you do things based on willpower, life is really tough. If you sit there and say, I really, really don't want to go to the candy machine today. Pretty soon, you know, something's going to happen. You'll have a rough moment in the day and you'll be in front of the candy machine. So what you need to do is to do things not based on willpower, but based on habit. And it takes a while to take good behavior and turn it into habits. But once they are habits, they're unstoppable. So yeah, you want to have the savings habit, just like you want to have the healthy eating habit, just like you want to have the exercise habit. You want to take these good behaviors that are core to leading a good life and turn them to something that you do instinctually. When it comes to money, it's interesting because where, to your point, it isn't about discipline, it's about systems and habits. It is also another paradox, I think, with investing that new people, maybe to our show or new people to Humble Dollar, I think would often think is that this must be incredibly complex. And you write that right in your introduction. It doesn't have to be complex. And all the way through it, kind of another theme that resonates, you don't write this explicitly, I don't think anywhere, really complexity sometimes is a red flag when it comes to investing. People, unfortunately, associate complexity with sophistication. And everybody wants to be sophisticated. Sure, you know, we all want to be able to say, yeah, I'm a sophisticated guy. And so if you're going to be sophisticated in the world of investing, what you're going to end up doing is exactly what Wall Street wants you to do, which is to buy hedge funds, to buy complicated investment products, because the more complex investment product is, the higher the fees that Wall Street can charge. That's why if you want to grow wealthy over time, not only do you need these great savings habits, but you want to invest in simple financial products. And probably the simplest and lowest cost financial product out there is an index fund, a broad market index fund that will give you thousands of securities in a single mutual fund or a single exchange traded index fund. And they'll charge you, you know, three or four cents for every hundred dollars you, you have invested each year. I mean, index funds in their simplicity 
are gold. Anything that is labeled sophisticated or complicated, if you struggle to understand it, stay away from it because you're much more likely to end up making Wall Street richer than yourself. That's a great transition into some of the individual stories that I'd, and I'd like to dive into just a couple of them. Dennis Friedman, who kicks off the book, kicks off a section about fierce frugality. Dennis, by the way, and the reason I think it's a great transition, Dennis hears about indexing. He hears about something called a spider, which is buying the S&P 500. This radio talk show host introduces him to the NASDAQ index, which he is day trading. And we won't go into this story, but he and his family lose a bunch of money day trading before he realizes maybe I should just buy and hold this and become a long-term investor. The piece of Dennis's story that I found very interesting, though, is this idea of not just frugality, but frugality and renting. He rents a place. He has a choice early in his life between two places to rent. One is $300 a month. The other is $500 a month. So he goes with a $300 a month rent. Seems like, Jonathan, initially a great decision, but I think for a lot of people out there, they sometimes have this aha that this low rent comes with some ugliness sometimes. It does indeed. I think in Dennis's case, if I recall, he ended up living next to a drug dealer, which was a bit of a downside. Yes. Um, he also had his apartment broken in. You know, he had his laundry stolen out of the building laundry machines. That's right. Yeah. Left it downstairs and there's all his clothes are gone. Yeah. So Dennis is actually one of the most popular writers for Humble Dollar and his modesty and his honesty really appeal to readers. And when you read that chapter of the book, you know, you can see why. He's just so brutally honest about his financial life with readers that you come to not only appreciate him as a person, but to see the mistakes that he made. I mean, Dennis actually ended up buying a, an apartment, but it was, if I recall correctly, 789 square feet. And he lived there for more than three decades. But he, he did it reluctantly. His boss had to persuade him to go ahead with the home purchase because he was uh, terrified of taking on that big mortgage debt. Today, I'm happy to report Dennis has actually sold that apartment. He um, now lives in a house uh, in Southern California, recently got married during the pandemic. And Dennis is now in his early 70s. And I think, you know, after years of maybe excessive frugality, he's having, you know, the retirement that he really deserves. Well, and he talks about that, you know, if he'd stayed in that rented property next to the drug dealer and just dealt with it, he, of course, talks about how he was saving so much money when his laundry was stolen. No big deal because the clothing didn't cost that much. And he was saving so much on his housing cost that that was great. But he talked about by the time that he left the house 35 years later, the rent on that $300 apartment had grown to, I believe, fifteen or $1,600. And his housing costs would have never been nearly as low as they were if he'd stayed in the same place. But in the back of my head as I'm reading this, Jonathan, and part of the reason I wanted to ask you about his story is he bought that house, I believe, in the 1980s. And we're seeing now in life, people are changing jobs far more often. They may relocate far more often. I'm hearing some of the younger people on the internet now saying, maybe this idea that buying a house is not the boon that it used to be. Maybe dealing with the cost of an apartment rising and having the flexibility may be a better, a better fit. Where do you come down on, on, on this rent versus buy thing? 
Well, so one of the things that Dennis mentions is that, as you pointed out, that if it stayed in the apartment, the rent would have risen considerably over the decades and certainly would have been far greater than the mortgage that he ended up taking on in terms of monthly cost. So the reason you buy a house is not for the home price appreciation. I mean, if you take the home price appreciation and then you deduct all the costs associated with owning a home, you know, you'll make almost nothing. But what you do when you buy a house is, one, you force yourself to save with every monthly check that you send to the mortgage company, you pay down a little bit of the principal, and two, you lock in your housing costs. Because if you take out a fixed rate mortgage, you know, your mortgage payment will not go up. Your homeowner's insurance may go up, your property taxes may go up, but the principal and interest that you pay to the mortgage company each month will stay the same. That's the reason you buy a house, to lock in your housing costs. But it only makes sense if you're going to stay there for a reasonable time. It's the same with the financial markets. If you don't have a long time horizon, you should not be owning stocks. You should be in cash investments or in bonds. Similarly, if you don't have a long time horizon, you should not be owning. You should be renting a home. And so what is the break-even point? I say that ideally you should have at least seven years and preferably longer. You really push it. Maybe you can break even on a house in five years um, that won't be the case for people who are buying during you know the craziness that we saw early last year. But yeah, it all comes down to time horizon. And if you're early in your career and you can't see staying put for more than a couple of years with your current employer and you may end up heading somewhere else, no, don't buy a house, rent. Homes are not short-term investments. Well, and I also don't want to lose his his overarching theme, which is control your housing housing costs for the win. Even if you rent, controlling your housing costs goes a long way. Because he says if he didn't control his housing costs, no matter what he did, he wouldn't be able to save nearly the amount that he saved. So, Joe, you know, in terms of my own financial journey, one of the crucial components of that was I owned the same house for 20 years. And it locked in my housing costs at a very low level and it allowed me to save prodigious amounts of money. But I'll tell you, in retrospect, I sort of wish I didn't live there. <laughs> it wasn't the greatest house. You know, it was a sort of, I stretched to buy it, or at least it felt like I was stretching to buy it. It was on a relatively busy road. You know, I ended up spending tons of money on renovations because I was trying to make it more to my liking. And probably I would have been smarter to either have stretched to buy a more expensive home or to hold off for a couple of years until I could have bought something more to my liking. So those 20 years in that house, were great financially, but you know, in terms of enjoying life, maybe not so great. Which is funny because for people that don't read the Humble Dollar, you're renovating the house that you're moving to in Philadelphia, right? I am. In fact, as I talk to you, I'm actually living in an Airbnb because you know the home I own here in Philadelphia is your typical Philadelphia row home, which means it is small. And unless I want to drive myself completely crazy, living there through the renovation... <laughs> would not be advisable. But I have learned the lesson of my past, and I am spending a considerable time or amount of money renovating this apartment so that it is much more to my liking. I'm actually spending more on this renovation than I paid to buy my first home, which is a little scary. And in your own story, that leads very much into your story, which is also in the frugality section of this book. You do two things with your money that I want to talk to you about. First one is 100% stock index portfolio. But outside of that, you drastically put money toward your mortgage. 
the stock piece sounds incredibly aggressive. The mortgage piece sounds absolutely 100% conservative. Talk to me about this portfolio mix and how that works for you. So go back to the early 1990s. Interest rates were significantly higher then than they are today. Not only my mortgage rate, which was over 7%, but also bond rates as well. Nonetheless, at that time, the interest rate on my mortgage was considerably higher than the interest rate I could buy by purchasing bonds. So the incentive was there to pay down the mortgage. It was the best bond I could buy. And that is indeed what I did. I paid off that mortgage in about a dozen years, if I recall correctly, because I could get a guaranteed 7% by paying down the mortgage. Whereas if I bought bonds, you know, maybe I would have got five or six. Now, having said that, we are in a different situation today. You know, remember, we had not so long ago mortgage rates that were below 3%. There are a lot of people around the country who have homes with mortgages of around 3% today. You can go out and you can buy, you know, high quality bonds that pay more than 4%. So is paying down a mortgage the great financial strategy today that it was when I was doing it? I can't make that case. I think that in, you know, for a lot of people, buying bonds today is probably better than paying down your mortgage. That said, I would say to anybody listening to this, ideally, if you can, you should get your mortgage paid off by the time you retire. Because when you retire, you don't want that added expense. But right now, solely on the numbers, you're better off buying bonds than paying down your mortgage. That resonates also a lot through a lot of these, these writer stories, Jonathan, which is this idea that we seek security. You know, a lot of us don't know that we were successful until you get well past that point. And then we seek this, this feeling and paying down the mortgage gives you that feeling. It makes me sad, by the way, that none of your writers are writing about how great annuities are, which really they should be. I mean, think about how much we want security. The annuity business should be so much better than it is. It kind of makes me sad. Well, it depends what sort of annuity you're talking about. Well, true. Yeah. So, you know, I would say to retirees, particularly those who don't have a traditional company pension, you know, who want that fixed income, you know, a plain vanilla immediate fixed annuity is a good use of your money. And in fact, I intend to use part of my nest egg to buy an immediate fixed annuity that pays lifetime income so that I do have that regular income. And one of the things that that can do for you because it provides you with that floor of income to cover your retirement expenses, along with Social Security, of course, is it can free you up to be more aggressive with the rest of your portfolio. So I am a relatively aggressive investor. You know, I still have a very high percentage of my portfolio in stocks. But to have the confidence to do that, you want to know that you can cover your fixed expenses in retirement. And between delayed Social Security benefits and having an immediate fixed annuity, that can provide that sense of security and free you up to be more aggressive. Well, I do like the two things together. I mean, when we talk about Social Security annuity, but also paying down your mortgage and not having that bill feels a little bit like an annuity as well. You know what I mean? Just this huge, this huge weight off your back. All right. I want to talk about Annika Hedstrom's story because she has twins like uh, my spouse Cheryl and I do. So I definitely feel for her story. But her twins came at a fairly high cost. Can you tell us a little bit of Annika's story? Yes, yeah, so Annika's um, twins were born prematurely, uh, very prematurely. And they 
ended up spending an additional, if I recall correctly, three months at the hospital, and the medical bills ran to seven figures for those twins. And this is, in many ways, the ultimate financial emergency, uh, one that you cannot shy away from. Anybody who ever has ever had a kid knows that you know you will do everything in your power to make sure that your kids are okay. You know, unfortunately, you know, they had the health insurance to pay for it. One of the things that people I hear is, you know, people don't want to get health insurance. They don't like the premiums, yada, yada, yada. There are two great reasons to have health insurance. One is the negotiated discounts the insurance company has with the medical providers. If you are paying full freight at the hospital with your doctor, it's going to be extremely painful. The insurance company ensures that you get those discounts. But second, and even more important, is the out-of-pocket maximum. So on my insurance policy this year, the out-of-pocket maximum is $5,600. That means, you know, whatever happens this year, I know that I'm not going to end up paying more than $5,600. Similarly, for Annika, you know, the thing that would save her from bankruptcy is the out-of-pocket maximum on her health insurance so that she could pay for the medical attention that her newly born twins lived so that she could handle those seven-figure bills. So anybody out there who says, you know, nah, I'm young, I'm healthy, I don't need health insurance, you are out of your mind. I feel like the people who skimp on insurances, Beck, I haven't been a financial planner a long time, but when I was, it was always the people that were cutting it close. You know, people that did had these razor thin margins. So like the first thing I'm going to cut is my insurance. And that is just the worst, the worst. Sadly, I think those people need more insurance and then maybe raise those deductibles, those out of pocket numbers as you get better. What was interesting to me too about Annika's story is that the same time this is happening, she's finding out this new house that they're living in. So her twins are at the hospital. She's paying a million dollars over there through insurance, luckily. But at the same time, she's got these housing problems. Like there's this also resonating theme of Jonathan, things come up in your life. And to think that they're not going to come up, that accidents won't happen. Heck, we talked about uh, some of your, when you and I were talking about exercising, some of your epic crashes on your bicycle, stuff happens out of the blue and being able to handle that, I think resonates throughout the story as well. This emergency fund idea. Sorry, we all need to run our financial lives Using this key phrase, margin for error, you need a margin for error in your in your financial life. And that means having a certain amount of money in the bank. It means making sure that you have insurance that will cover the big financial risks in your life. You know, we're talking about the potential of getting sued, the potential of having a bad turn in your health, the potential that, you know, one of the spouses in a relationship will die and leave the other one in the financial lurch. You need to think about the risks that are in your financial life and make sure that you have some margin for error so that when the bad things happen, the wheels don't go completely off the bus. My last question for you, Jonathan, people I'm sure listening to us think, well, Jonathan Clements, heck, he's seen everything between the personal finance column, between all the humble dollar stuff, between the, uh, the, you know, this is your ninth work, so much stuff out there. There still has to be something that surprised you, some aha when you were putting this book together. What surprised you as you were doing this? That's a great question. I think one of the things that surprised me when I sat down to write my essay is how 
my financial life has really fallen into two parts. The first 20 years of my financial life, I was everything that we've talked about today. I was saving regularly, holding down costs, building that nest egg, getting to that tipping point, trying to ensure that I had this financial security, trying to ensure that I was on track for financial freedom. And then when I look back at what happened in the subsequent 15 years, you know, the 15 years since I reached that point, I started to realize how chaotic my financial life looked. You know, <laughs> I've changed jobs. I've tried multiple different things. You know, I've moved a reasonable amount. And it's been a lot of fun. I was the kid in college who swore he would never get married and never have children. Within a year of getting out of college, I was engaged. Within two years, I was married. Within three years, I was a father. You know, I did everything early on. You know, <laughs> I was so precocious, I even got divorced early on. <laughs> I did not spend my 20s partying like so many other people did. You know, I was raising kids. I never sat at a bar. I never went to a club. But because I was so careful financially through this 20 years, I got to my 40s and suddenly I had this financial freedom and I've used it over the past 15 years to do all kinds of different things. You know, I tried my hand at teaching personal finance at the college level. You know, I worked on a financial startup that went down in flames. I launched Humble Dollar. I've done a bunch of books. You know, I lived in different parts of the country. It's been a wild 15 years, but it was made possible by all those good financial habits early on. Red roof in early so you can get the Hyatt later on. Absolutely. And who knows? Maybe one of these days we'll even go for like a Marriott or something. <laughs> Getting crazy now, man. Getting super crazy. The book is My Money Journey, How 30 People Found Financial Freedom and You Can Too. 30 inspirational stories from different people who've written for Humble Dollar. And I believe available everywhere, Jonathan. Available wherever good books are sold and bad ones as well. <laughs> it's so great to finally meet you. Thanks for helping our stackers get a little bit better with their money today. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's been a lot of fun, Joe. Thanks for having me on. This is Chris from Heavy Metal Money. When I'm not raging in a mosh pit, I'm stacking Benjamins. So honored and love talking to that guy, OG, Jonathan Clements. That's big thanks to Jonathan for hanging out with us. You know, this, this idea of buy versus rent Buying a house early on, you, you see so many people, OG, that worry that buying might be might be a problem. You and I have talked about renting. Certainly, Jonathan Clements even just said, right? You heard him, that renting still may be the better option for some people. But certainly, if you can predict the future and get ahead by buying and lock it in that price, it could be a good deal. It certainly depends on the timing. We, we bought our first house in uh, 2004, I think, 2003, 2004. And uh, sold it 10 years later for the same price. Yeah. We did a really stupid thing, you know, so this is operator error and self-inflicted, but our first house was interest only. So for 10 years, we paid very little principal on our house. So not only did we live there for 10 years, but we also didn't, didn't appreciate and we didn't make any headway on the, on the actual principal balance or not much anyway. Um, and you contrast that with the timing of our house here in Texas, where, you know, we were like, oh my goodness we're paying 50% more for, it's a bigger house for sure than what we had in Michigan, but, but you know, we're writing a bigger check and now here we are aggressively paying the house off, you know, with a low rate and a 15 year term. And it's appreciated by, you know, roughly double in the last 12 years or 10 years. 
And so now, now we have this huge, these two opposite experiences of, of the same process, right? Buying a house and getting kicked in the face, buying a house and it's not almost paid off, but it's on its way to being paid off early and tons of equity. So some of it's timing, I think. And then also just getting lucky, you know, and being able to be in the same place for a long time. But for somebody in their, in their twenties, in their early thirties, hanging out with us, listening, you know, Jonathan said, it certainly depends on how long you're going to stay with your job. There's like this seven year crossover point, but do you pull that trigger? Do you pull the buy house trigger if you're not sure? Or do you, do you not? This, I mean, this is a lot like uh, the rich dad, poor dad thing. The poor dad in rich dad, poor dad, every time he got promoted, got a bigger house and like kept on increasing his, his lifestyle with that promotion. You know, where this works to Jonathan's point in his example was I bought this house. I got a payment. That's whatever, $700 a month. And it's tight, you know, and I'm like, ah, this probably was a terrible idea. In 10 years from now, through normal pay raises and promotions and all that sort of stuff, it won't be as tight. And in 25 years from now, it certainly it will be a drop in the bucket. But the key is to allow that to happen. If you're going to make a mistake there, the mistake is I bought this house. It was kind of tight. And then I got a big promotion and I bought another house and it was kind of tight. And then I got a promotion and my spouse got promoted and we wanted to go to a you know, a better school district. So we got another bigger house and it was kind of tight. And and you never let that opportunity for that gap of cash flow, you know, and that equity build to happen. So so yeah, I mean if you're 25 and you're you're excited where you are from a town standpoint and living your experience and you want to be there for a while, that's a it's a great way to build equity, except for the 10 year period where it doesn't happen. And that happens on occasion. It is. It is. Social history. Well, and it's interesting because I think looking at the demographic patterns pre-COVID, you and I would have said the the chance that you're going to be able to stay in the same residence is much, much lower than it was 30 years ago because you're going to change jobs and the chance that you may move towns, move locales, and it's going to be a pain in the butt to live in this house anymore is much lower than it was 30 years ago. But post-COVID and looking at what's going on in office real estate, you got to say those odds of staying in the same house, OG, significantly went up in the last four years. Well, yeah, they've certainly gone up for sure. Yeah. You know, especially if you're in a career that allows for that, that flexibility. But even if you end up choosing wrong in terms of the time period, you just get unlucky like we did in our first. There's things that you can do to help that, right? If we would have had a normal mortgage over that 10-year period, we would have established some equity. If we would have stayed another 10 years, I know the value of that house because who doesn't Zillow their own house, you know, or their own <laughs> ex-houses, right? I just so said I, refresh over and over and over. Yeah. So I know what the value of my old house is in Michigan and it would have worked out okay. You know, now we would be 20 years into this, into that purchase, you know, on the downhill side of that mortgage, and the market has recovered and so on and so forth. So, so had we done it the right way, and if we stayed in the same house and paid a normal mortgage payment, you know, yeah, the first 10 years suck, but the next 10 years were awesome. So we would still be in great shape. And interestingly enough, have a much smaller mortgage payment than I have now, which is what, which is what, you know, in Jonathan's example, it was a good benefit of that. So yeah. we did the rich dad, poor dad thing one time for the poor dad. We went, Ooh, new house. <laughs> Woo. I do love the just the general theme in your story and in Jonathan's stories that you can make mistakes. And you know what? Most of the time, it's not going to kill you. You're going yeah. to be okay. You figure it out and, and you make it. And that was inspiring to me in this interview. 
Hey, let's uh, throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, OG, they put what you value first. Ooh, definitely hitting the fireworks store on the way up to Michigan. Oh, yeah. yeah, buddy. <laughs> Everybody uh, nearby in Michigan's going, where did they get those? Yeah, kaboom. Yes, as you show them your three remaining fingers and your one remaining eye. <laughs> we uh, We did this one year where we launched them all off the dock and- you know, it's great. It's really nice. And then the second year we did it, we made a little floating platform and it oh. went out a little bit further in the lake and Sweet. did it, which is, which is good. You know, you nail down the things. So the tubes, so they're all kind of in one spot. They're not going to shoot off and then, you know, the You're neighbor's face like the, or something. Remember the San Diego fireworks that one year where they turned sideways and just, set just, the whole barge the whole on thing. fire? Yeah, we didn't, we don't do that. But both the years that we've done this has been dead calm. So just, you know, there's no wind. It's just, it's really nice. And then the next morning you wake up and you've got to like skim the lake because all those little plastic pieces or all those little paper things have blown all, you didn't even, didn't even realize it. So then we got a big cleanup project the next day to, to do that. So if you're going to do fireworks, clean up your mess, people. Clean it up, people. Uh, That's what I like about Haven Life is that they clean up your no life insurance mess. How about that? They do. Yeah. Yes. Very quickly, as a matter of fact. It's your loved ones and your time that uh, most people value, but your loved ones, your time, some fireworks, and the right quality term life insurance. And they make it actually simple for you to buy it so you can spend more time on those other things. Application, it's all simple. It's all online. Streamline, you get an instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable and no waiting several weeks for a decision. Super customer support. Robust life insurance calculators for people not sure what they need. Stackingbedjamins.com slash Haven Life. And for people, by the way, who know that they don't want to go through a physical Haven Life also as a product for them, just go to stackybenjamins.com slash Haven Life. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to Dakota. Hey, Dakota. Hey, Joe and OG. This is Dakota. My current site is closing in six months. And as part of that, my job is leaving me and moving to Ohio. I can relocate, but I have little desire to live in Ohio and my wife has even less. Since I love my wife more than my job, I will be unemployed or with a new company by the end of the year. I have not yet begun applying, but there are currently multiple job openings in my area. Some background, we are mid-30s with over 400K in our 401Ks and have a 12-month emergency fund. My wife is employed in a different professional field, and assuming she does not lose her job too, our emergency fund could stretch out to 36 months. If I stick around until the site closes, I will get the equivalent of five months' salary between a severance and retention bonus. Prior to the job loss announcement, we were budgeted to have a surplus this year equal to one month's expenses and have been planning to increase our contributions either to our kids' 529 funds or to our taxable brokerage fund. Should we still increase our investing as planned or hold on to all the cash we can to expand our emergency fund? Thanks. Dakota, thanks for the question. And OG, first, first is first. Great job saving on on their part to be ready for this moment because who knows when something like that's going to happen. And if you have a 12-month reserve, yeah. it certainly expands the number of options. And if you don't want to move to any place, <laughs> it just, I don't want to pick on Ohio. Just, I know you want to pick on Ohio. I don't want to pick on oh, Ohio. Oh, I've, I've already got it loaded up. So oh. there was this uh, news article, <laughs> this news story from a Fox News oh. station in Austin a year ago. We saw it and we couldn't, they, they played it in Dallas. It was so funny. So basically, uh, Ohio has been doing a lot of advertising, had been doing a lot of advertising in Austin to move to Ohio. So they, they were interviewing some Austinites about that uh, advertising campaign. This is what Austin folks had to say about it. 
of Ohio. How about Austinites? Something tells me their views are a little different. Can you point out Ohio on this map? Yeah, right here. I believe they are right up in here somewhere. That's them, yeah. So they know where it is, but would they move there from here? Um, I don't want to say never. I can't imagine anyone moving from Austin, Texas to Ohio for any reason. And nobody wants to move to Ohio. Okay then, but that whole Four Seasons thing is kind of nice, right? We have spring, summer, hot, and hotter. That's four seasons. I'm okay with that. I'm originally from Michigan. <laughs> Why'd you move here? I'll get away from the colds. What would it take to get you to move to Ohio? <laughs> literally nothing. I would literally never move to Ohio. Million dollars? No. No. How would you feel if you woke up tomorrow and you were in Ohio? I would cry. I would cry and then I'd move. <laughs> <laughs> so no one would move to Ohio ever for any Ohioans, reason. Ohioans, uh, uh, send your hate mail to OG at stackybenjamins.com. <laughs> it was our news. It was a news story and it's on the internet. So it has Cincinnati, to be Cincinnati. I like Cleveland. I like you and I both have some about Kentucky. We have some problems with Columbus. Um, although I do like the so. town of Columbus. I just my, don't. My son has been threatening to apply to Ohio state. And I said, well, I hope you have all sorts oh, of money. Oh, yeah. That's a bridge too far. I won't go yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess we should get to Dakota's question. Uh, does Dakota uh, keep the plan increase or does he stockpile cash? I think you're really comfortable with a year's worth of worth of cash. And if that makes you fine, uh, you know, comfy, then I think you kind of go according to plan. What I would do alternatively is just add an end date in there and just say, OK, we're going to let this thing kind of drip down and do its thing because we're pretty sure I'm going to be able to find work and you know, lots of opportunities here in, 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 in your area. But if I don't buy such and such a point, then we're going to switch to being a little bit more, a little tighter on the budget or more austerity plans. So maybe you say, well, we'll let it, we'll let the 12 month reserve drip down to nine. We'll let it drip down to six. But if we're, but if we're still hunting for work and our emergency funds down to nine months, we're going to kind of postpone the, we're going to go back to the way it was just for a short period of time. So if you're pretty confident that, that you can find work, which it sounds like you can or are, I should say, then, um, then yeah, I think it's fine. Keep the plan. That's why you have the emergency fund. It gives you the flexibility. Absolutely. I just think uh, he's done so many things right. You know, there's, there is also, I'm not sure, I'm not sure of this, but based on his age and just using the uh, rule of 72, I'd love if he looked in his financial plan and saw if that money just grew if he gets the financial independence picture that he wants at this point. And there yeah. seems like there might be a possibility there. Uh, might be coming in a little close, but but could be OG that he could be, oh boy, I'm about to use a phrase that I don't like, coast-fi, coast-fi. Oh boy, oh boy. But what, the great thing, what that means is that he may not need to save significant amounts of money at this point because he did such a good job of saving earlier on. And if that's the case, OG, he could, his ability to accept a job that he likes for significantly less money where he can't save as much expands and really expands his horizons of all the things that he could possibly do. But it's what I like about knowing, knowing kind of what your plan is, where you're, yeah, where, where, you're where you are on the path. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where that ball of money gets you. Uh, thanks to Dakota 
for that question in Dakota. Don't give me the look, Doug, because Doug already knows what we're going to say. Dakota's getting some great swag for calling into the Stacky Benjamin Show. It's our Haven Life Greatest Money Show on Earth uh, Circus t-shirt. And you'll get one too if you've got a question for us. StackyBenjamins.com slash voicemail. By the way, speaking of that, let's go to the community calendar. We have gotten some wonderful reviews from people. And officially, I put your name in the hat for a book. If you if you leave us a review and send it to me wherever you are, we got a nice message from listener Katie, by the way, who happens to be in Ohio. OG, she oh. says she's attached a screenshot. She's an Ohio State alumna and loved the banner about the rivalry. It's a nice surprise to my already favorite podcast. I hear you have a plethora of books you're just giving away. Uh, let's just put our collegiate rivalry aside. I have. Five out of five stars listen to every podcast. Unlike Paula, I know way too much useless trivia and love to add to my useless knowledge with Doug's weekly trivia. Uh, please send a book to this Ohio State grad turned Mainer who loves finance and, and books. Which she said she's moved to Maine. Love me some Maine. It's pretty cool. Yes. You don't hear people joking about moving to Maine. No. No. Because it's cool. It's, it's absolutely awesome. You know what? Uh, and I wrote right back to Katie and uh, gave her a choice. At this point in the game, I gave her a choice of five different books because I have so many. So don't leave us a review because you want a book. Please, please no. But if you leave us a review and you send it to me, official, I put your name in a hat. But right now I'm giving people a choice because I got to get some. Mom is complaining about uh, the number of books that we have sitting here from uh, people that have either been on the show or want to come on the show that just send us these books for us to prep for interviews. Also coming up this week on Thursday, I will be on Instagram at 5 PM Eastern guest still to be determined, or we might not have a guest might just hang out. Maybe we can get OG on Instagram. One of these days, uh, stacky Benjamins.com slash welcome gives you not just our Instagram account, but also our YouTube channel, our fireside for the fireside chats where you can ask the questions out loud to our guests stackybenjamins.com slash welcome gives you the welcome guide. If you're not here because you want to hang out with us on social media, you're not here because you are hoping to know Doug's trivia answer like uh, Katie does. You're here because you need better help in your corner. OG and his team are taking clients. So head to stackybenjamins.com slash OG. That's the link to him and his team schedule so that you can begin making decisions your future self. Well, thank you for stackybenjamins.com slash OG. All right, that is it for today. Man, lots of people to thank, lots of takeaways, but Doug, let's narrow it down. What would you say our top three are? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Jonathan Clements. Use index funds whenever possible. Pay down mortgages and make mistakes along the way. By doing, you'll find yourself much more in the game than if you don't invest at all. Second, robbing a bank? Maybe just working there is a better option. But the big lesson? What a surprise to learn that Carl Benz both created a deep knee workout routine and an automobile. That guy was multi-talented, am I right? Thanks to Jonathan Clements for joining us today. You'll find his book, My Money Journey, How 30 People Found Financial Freedom and You Can Too, wherever books are sold. If you're buying from Amazon, click the link on our show notes and you'll help the show. Head to stackingbenjamins.com for those. Thanks to everyone who's already done that. 
This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2023, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. This show was written by Lacey Langford, who's also the host of the Military Money Show, with help from me, Joe, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. Kevin Bailey helps us take a deeper dive into all the topics covered on each episode in our newsletter called The 201. You'll find the 411 on all things money at The 201. Just visit stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Tina Eichenberg makes the video version of this show. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude and Kate Yunkin are our social media coordinators, and Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com basement. Not only should you not take advice from these nerds, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at the Stacking Benjamin Show. You know, all last week, OG, we didn't talk about Father's Day. How was your Father's Day? It was, um, trying to remember, good. Yeah, no, it was great. Watched a little golf. Watched a little U.S. Open. A lot of U.S. Open, actually. What Um, was the story of the guy who won the U.S. Open? He apparently has some family story. Do you know that story? Clark was his uh, last name? His his mother had passed away while he was in college, uh, so they had talked a little bit about that. He, uh, <clears throat> I guess he's been a pro for a while, but but not really successful and has won twice this year, obviously including the U.S. Open. So kind of sort of turned it around was kind of the major, major piece there. So watched a little bit of that, uh, made some shish kebabs on the grill, which is fun. Um, I have this grill pan. I love, I love grilling vegetables in a grill pan on the grill. Because you don't have to like skewer it, you know, you know, they, and they get smaller sometimes, you know, if you yeah. just throw them on the grill, sometimes they fall through the grill grates or whatever. But I have this grill pan. No. Yeah, that I got has the holes little mesh, mesh net uh, pan. Yeah, this one's this one's like carbon steel. And so it's like uh, cast iron, but a little bit different. And um, if you haven't cooked in cast iron or you haven't broiled something in a cast iron pan before, you are doing yourself a disservice because... Take a casserole, for example, right? You, you put it in there, you know, you cook it, you take it out. What do you do with it when you take it out of the oven? 
You have to let it, let it sit. cool. Yeah. You set it on the stove and, and, and it gets cool. Those cast iron pans or those carbon steel pans retain heat like crazy. So you put it on the grill, you get it to about 550 degrees. So steam's coming off this thing or smoke, whatever it is. You put the vegetables in there, they cook, and then you can take it off the grill and, you know, put it on the, put it on the table and it's still going to be hot. And so you're eating hot food for the, for the day or, you know, the, the dinner as opposed to, you know, normally you'd cook it and you'd set it on a tray and, and now it gets cold sitting outside. Well, not in Texas, it won't get cold, but you get the idea. Um, I noticed this the first time we broiled some chicken in a cast iron pan and I went back for, you know, like another half of a piece and it was still piping hot because the pan stays at, you know, now the downside is that if it's, you know, you're kind of sort of still cooking it, you know, so you gotta be, it'd be okay with it still, you know, cooking a little bit, but, um, such a great piece of cookware, carbon steel grill pan from made in. I would, uh, you want to, if you want to sponsor us, I, I love my, I love our made in stuff. It's pretty sweet. Good work. Back to golf for just a second. I've I've watched that golf documentary, um, uh, Full Swing, which is made by the same people who did the Formula One documentary on is this Netflix. The, is this the Live VPGA thing? My wife was talking about this. The first season has a lot of that because that was oh, okay. right when that was okay. when that was going on. So you've got uh, the only reason I knew because I don't actively follow golf. What is neat about this and the tennis one? Both of them. Now, when I watch golf or tennis, I know who some of the players are just like yeah. the Formula One thing. Like I see people that I recognize now and I go, oh, OK, now I know a little bit more about them. I started watching like, Arnold's uh, new special on on Netflix. It's like becoming Arnold or something. And, you know, obviously I'm going to say obviously, but I'm, I'm, a lot of people have seen pumping iron or, you know, whatever that sure. thing from the 70s. Yeah. And 80s. This is this is him now reflecting on his career, you know, and kind of his his own autobiography type. Good. Worth it. Cause he's, he's, he's got some like full-time job at Netflix now. Oh, does he? Um, he's like in charge of all their action content now, apparently. I mean, that's, that's at least the advertising campaign they do with him is that he's in charge of all their action stuff. What's more impressive is that, you know, you, you, you see, you go to the gym, right. And you go, okay, today I'm going to work chest and tries, right? So you do three sets of 10, you do three sets of the, you know what I mean? And he's like, yeah, when I went to the gym, I would have, there's a wall that was completely wood and there was some chalk and I would write, you know, chest, arms, back, biceps, triceps. And, you know, but he's saying it in German, which is kind of funny. And then he goes, uh, he goes, I wouldn't stop until the wall was filled up with tick marks. He's like, so I do 20 or 25 sets of each body part every yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you go, man, I really worked out hard today. I put in a solid 35 minutes at the gym. I have a thing about watching the people who are the best at the world at what they do. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and he obviously yeah. was the best bodybuilder in the world at, at, in, in his prime. So it's I heard just a similar story crazy. from Dwayne Johnson, like back in the day, he would just spend all day at the gym. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of sort of his, you know, that's his job, right? Sure. And I get that. Um, you know, if you got the, if you got the money to spend all day working out, might as well. That's why but, we, uh, we have, we have strong vocal muscles because we, uh, La 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 la, la 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 la. Podcast. Yes. But anyway, I watched the first episode. I thought it was thought it was good, fun to see. So that and Extraction Two coming out. That already came Man. out. Actually, I haven't watched it yet. So I'm yeah. gonna go blow some stuff up in the movie room. Don't want to sit next to you if you're blowing stuff up. Chris Helmsworth. He's so dreamy.
Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.